G'day podcasters, just a bit of pre-show chat as friends, just just chatting here as friends, actually, no, I'm lying, I have an agenda. There comes a time in every friendship where one friend says to the other, hey mate, could I get a lift to the airport? And then that friend goes, Ugh, I guess we are friends. And it, you know, it would be nice if he gave me a lift to the airport. So, you know what? All right, mate, when do you need to go? And then they say, it's 4am and you go, oh, geez. And you've already said, I'll take you. And then they left out the time and it's, it's well played. That's a well played airport move. If you've done that before, well played. If you've been the receiving, on the receiving end of that, um, sorry, dad, I've done that to you many a times, but that's family. That's different. So I've been, I've kind of been setting you guys up. You, you're all friends of the show. You know that, but that friendship comes with a price and that price is that I need your help. I'm coming to you as a friend. I need some help. This show has a problem, and that problem is a clout problem. This show does not have enough clout, apparently, to get certain types of guests. I'm talking, you know, New York best-selling authors. Turns out, everyone's got a podcast, and that's why I'm so grateful you're listening to this one. But everyone's got one, and so all these interesting guests, they... They can't talk to everybody. There's simply not enough time of the day. So they've got to draw a line somewhere. And they draw the line at clout. And it just turns out that I'm on the wrong side of that clout line. So, for instance, this one New York best-selling author says, I don't speak, I don't even consider speaking to anyone unless you've got 50 episodes in the, in the, in the bank. Correct. Got that. Tick. Done. As well as 250 podcast reviews on Apple Podcasts. Now... That I don't have. Friends, we are at 50. And that is why I come to you hat in hand. All my cards on the table. I would love to continue to talk to very interesting people. But I'd also love the freedom to talk to some people that have a bit of clout. It's quite difficult to get some of these people. They're like, oh, how many people listen to your show? How many reviews you got? And I just I just feel as if clout will give will allow me to continue to talk to interesting people, even get some higher profile people, because then they'll go, Oh, this guy's got a higher profile. He must be one of us. Haha, <laughs> joke's on you. Am I? Am I? Probably no, probably not. So, friends of the show, I need your help. Could you please jump on Apple Podcasts? I think this is very do- doable. If not even half of you left a review on Apple Podcasts. We could hit the target of 250. I think we're at 50 at the moment. And together, we can get some clout and we can talk to the people who have clout and get past the clout gatekeepers, which are often publicists. They're like, publicists are the ones often arranging this sort of stuff. And they're like, yo, how many reviews you got? And I feel like pretty soon, thanks to all you friends of the show, I can go, oh, I got... I got more than 250. So, so it doesn't take very long. Pull out your phone. Five stars, please. I did get one one-star podcast. It's Listen, I haven't, haven't quite moved on from that. I read it every now and then, shed a tear, and then move on. I mean, you could give it one stars. I guess they didn't spe- specify how good quality the ratings have to be. But, you know, five stars would make me happy. One stars make me a little sad. I'm not that enlightened yet to just brush them off. So thanks for being friends of the show. Thanks for listening. And thanks for taking me to the airport. I mean, reviewing this podcast so that we can solve the problem, the clout problem. Thanks for the clout, guys. Enjoy the episode. I'm right and you're wrong. Listen now.
Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back to Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we break down the ideas that divide us. Oof, there is many of them, especially right now, uh, to try and find the humanity that connects us all. My name's Conrad, and I'll be honest. This is honesty time here. This podcast, listen, isn't for everybody. Um, it uh, It isn't an easy listen. 40 minutes of someone you disagree with or someone that challenges you, it's it's not uh, not always pleasant, but I'll tell you I'll tell you what it it I don't think it takes long before you get good at it, and not long after that, many listeners have told me they actually enjoy it. So they've come across someone they disagree with, and go, oh, this is interesting. Tell me more. Um, if that's you, then you're a great friend of the show. If it's not you, you're still a friend of the show, and that's okay. Um, so if you're here for like facts, uh, a debate, or to have like your opinion validated by someone who thinks the same as you in this nice little echo chamber, then I'm very sorry, but you've probably come to the wrong place. But if you're here to practice growing your understanding and empathy, uh, then welcome. You are very welcome here. So three things as you're listening to this podcast. I'm a teacher, so I'm trying to make it practical. Three things. You're already doing the first one. Listen. If you just listen to the most triggering episode, you're like, damn, I disagree with that. Click listen. Number two, as you're listening, jump on Instagram, ask me a question. What it, well, don't ask me a question. Tell me a question that I forgot to ask. It's only me here and that kind of sucks because I've only got one perspective. But the more people that shoot through questions in the live and the more people that send through questions, oh, I wish you'd ask this, it's going to make me ask better questions later on. And three, respond. After you finish the episode or while you're listening to the episode, send me a DM, send me your thoughts. What has it made you think? Now... We can get started. All the preamble out of the way. We always begin with the clickbait. And the clickbait today, here we go. You've already seen it. Fake boobs and the patriarchy. Man, do those things go side by side? I feel like they probably do. And, well, let's just welcome our next guest and longtime friend of the show, Morgan Day Cecil, who was my second ever podcast episode when she was in Australia. Welcome back to the show, Morgan. Thank you so much, Conrad. It's so good to be here. Not quite the same as that sexy hotel room in Sydney, but still happy to be here. Pretty close. <laughs> well, in in theme, I am in a hotel room, less sexy, and locked in for 14 days. So that's kind of on Crazy theme. Time. Thanks for coming back uh, and, and chatting to us again. I, you know, was scrolling Instagram one, one day and I saw you, Morgan, post about fake boobs. And I was like, listen, clickbait, I'm in. Watch. And I thought, <laughs> this is a very interesting conversation that I'm not really qualified to have, but that's what makes me a curious observer as I witness the unfolding of femininity and women's rights and women's perspectives. Um but I'm going to begin the show as we as I do now, which we didn't last time you were here, with some assumptions. So I want to play a game with you and I'm going to level at you just some assumptions people might have and friends of the show have actually sent through 
So they've put me in the oh, awkward fine. situation of like, here's what some assumptions people have. But rather than having the assumptions running away and ending the conversation, this is the beginning of the conversation. So I've got two little boxes, Morgan, and I'm going to squash you mm-hmm. into one of the two. You get yes or no, whichever shoe fits. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I'm a best, but I've really never been a black and white gal. I'm really comfortable with the juxtaposition. It's really hard. This is going to be a challenging game, Conrad. That is, you've already, you've already gone to the, like the subversive nature of this game. Often, neither shoe fits and a conversation must follow. Um, but he will try anyway, okay? So these are, these are from, from the friends of the show. They, are, they, they really confess to their judgments because we all have them. So they've taken the opportunity to be like, listen, I do have assumptions. I'm not going to deny it. And we're going to confess them. And so here, here, here they are, okay? Uh, number one. You are not religious, yes or no? Oh, How do you define religious? You define it, and then you you just you just come up with your own definition in your head and go yes or no. Yes, I am. Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. Um, number two, maybe some people scrolling scrolling the Instagram. You must be an attention seeker. Hmm. Yes, I am. Oh, yes. Lent into it. Okay, okay. Um, fake boobs is what we're talking about. Uh, you must be insecure about your physical appearance, and that's what leads people to surgery. No, I'm not. No. All right. Shatter that one for some people. Okay. I don't, I don't know exactly where this one comes from, but you might know what, I, what, I'm ta- what this person's talking about. You must be a Proverbs 7 woman. Now, I think Proverbs 7 is like, submit to your husband or something like that. I don't know the exact verse. I'm showing my biblical ignorance. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely. A hard no. Okay. Okay. Um, you must have no boundaries when it comes to pleasure and relationships. No. Hard no. There's vigorous shaking of the head there. No. Okay. Um, all right. Different angle here. You must be exploiting sexuality for profit. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, all right. And this is a, this is a, I think maybe, maybe someone from, from your end of the Instagram. A f- you must be a feminist talking about the respect she deserves. Hmm. I don't know about that one. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> wh- where- I mean, I think. <laughs> Uh, talking about the respect she deserves. I don't think you need to talk about the respect you deserve if you respect yourself. Oh, you just don't need to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, man, I don't even know which box. We'll say, we'll say a subtle yeah. no, a subtle no on that one. Um, a feminist, would you say? Yes. Yes. Okay. A yes and no within, within that one. All right. What, um... Before we go on, what what assumptions have you, like do you encounter the most? Like, what's a key one that you're like people assume this, and what do you think is most misunderstood about who you are and what you do? I think the assumption is if you have fake beauty of any kind, breast implants, Botox, uh, then you don't have any depth, or you don't have you don't value your intellect or the soulful 
parts of a character and your own, but it's that's not true. How did I miss that one? That was a that was an obvious one. Just sitting there. Okay, cool. So tell me about you. For those of you who might have not listened to the whole catalog and heard your first episode, what what's your line of work? Um, religious kind of affiliations and what is it, who are you and what do you do? Yes, my line of work is in helping women reimagine womanhood, really reclaim their relationship with sex, with God, with money, and live in a way where they feel like they get to fully express who they are. So that's my work. I work with women. I'm a coach. I lead groups. Once upon a time, I led retreats. Hopefully one day I'll be able to lead retreats again (laughs) in the world. And um, I am a Christian. I'm on the path to becoming Catholic, actually. My husband and I have been on that path, which is a long journey because he's been married before. So it's been like a two-year journey of him annulling his first marriage and us waiting word from the higher-ups in the church if we get to be Catholic or not, (laughs) which is its own story and crazy journey in and of itself. But I love it because it's so wacky and totally um, doesn't belong because in many ways the Catholic Church represents patriarchal religion to the core. Yeah, but in yeah, many it's a big ways, triangle. It, mm-hmm, yeah, but there's actually a lot of mystery and there's a lot of beautiful divine feminine practices and theology in there. And so it's a crazy journey in my mom with the spirit. Did you grow up, obviously you didn't grow up Catholic. Did you grow up religious? No, no. I grew up in an atmosphere where a lot of questions were asked and it was really encouraged to ask big questions about the meaning of life and who God is and the cosmos and, you know, what is out there? Is anything out there? And so I grew up with a dad who was really big into arts and sciences and philosophy. And that's kind of created my path into always being really at home, asking the questions. Mm. And did you, what other... What other, I guess, clubs or affiliations or things do you belong to or identify with, like politically or any sporting clubs or anything like that? <laughs> it's funny because I definitely need a new hobby, Conrad. Yes. <laughs> like I, I need a new hobby. Um, I work a lot and I love what I do and my work is very much kind of interwoven into my my own mission and my my experience as a woman. So I need I think I need to join some other clubs. But looking right for now, a new like, hobby. I have two kids. I am married and so between being a mother and a wife and running a business and yeah. No hobbies. I need another hobby. All right. We'll send through your hobby suggestions. Um, I hear golf's nice. I don't know. You get on the golf course. Oh, I like to learn horseback riding. That's my, that's a dream, a childhood dream. Learn how to ride a horse. To own a pony. Yeah, own a pony. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be nice. I would, I could go a pony. All right. To our clickbait. Bring us to this clickbait idea, fake boobs and the patriarchy. First up, what, like, what is patriarchy? What is patriarchy, Conrad? I don't know. I Googled (laughs) it and and I'd say like a male dominated 
male benefited system. system. Yeah. 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 It's pretty systemic. It's in all of our institutions. It's, it's really the water we're swimming in. Like government structures, religious structures. Yeah. It's hierarchical. Men are the leaders. They're seen as the authority. Uh, A male's experience, a male's gaze, a male's narrative is the, is seen as the normal. So it's the male bias. It's the, mm-hmm. it's, it's a man's experience in the world is the normal experience in the world. Um, a woman's experience in the world is somehow less than her opinions, her preferences. Uh, all of that is second to a man's opinions, preferences. And so bring me yeah. to your experience of this because it we're talking about the idea of of systems and structures religious political um corporate that benefit or are built upon a male's narrative like there's the whole thing i listened to a podcast once about like medic like women and strokes is like severely uh under studied and researched because everyone assumes you grab your arm when you're having a stroke but that's only because they studied men so that would be like an institutional thing where where a bias towards men has led women to like lots of them to die of strokes and no one even know they're having a stroke because they didn't realize that the symptoms were different because they didn't study it so talk to me about your experience with what we're calling the patriarchy yeah yeah so my experience is i help women really learn how to see themselves clearly and love themselves unconditionally. And so my, my, my work is really around understanding what the male gaze is and helping a woman reclaim her own gaze and heal her own gaze. And so that term, the male gaze, actually came from Laura Mulvey to describe the way that women are portrayed as objects in media, objects in commercials, you know, the classic one being like selling cans of beer. And Mm -hmm. a woman is just a sex object in the commercial. But it's also the male gaze is we see it in the way that a some a movie is filmed and the angle of the camera it's as if the male is the one doing the viewing in the scene and so in so many of these things we become unconsciously taught how to see a woman as an object hmm. and to see and so if we are a woman if we are a woman we learn how to see ourselves from the outside in instead of just feeling ourselves and being able to look in the mirror and see ourselves clearly we're always kind of thinking, well, how do we look from a male's perspective? And that means how attractive are we? How hot we? How hot are we? What is our value in terms of how a male sees us? And so that's the male gaze. And the work that I do is to help a woman unpack that and heal from that, so she can see herself clearly. Which is there's a lot there's a lot to that because there's this internalized misogyny that happening that happens and it's like discrimination. Really yeah, seeing ourselves, if, if whatever the standard is, as far as like what a male considers hot, for, ex- mm-hmm. for example, breasts, big boobs, let's say, then we learn to see ourselves maybe as less than if we don't have that body that a male considers hot mm-hmm. as one example or youth, you know, I'm 40. And so, you know, women age out of culture and the system at like 30. Yeah. Whereas George Clooney gets to be hot till 60, bloody George Clooney. Yeah, men get to be hot until their 60s. Women are continue to stay young. They're in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so it's 
really learning how to see and just waking up to the fact that the stories and the narratives and the perspectives, um, it's all has a certain angle to it, has a certain lens on it. And it's not about big boobs are bad, red lips are bad, long hair is bad. It's not about saying what male appreciates or our culture males think is hot is bad. It's saying let's become conscious of it and think about how we're using it. How we're using it. Are we using these appearances, our appearance, as a way to gain approval and to feel better about ourselves, yeah. or are we um, playing with it in some way? And and so for me, it's like there's like I'm not playing into how a male sees me. I'm playing with it the patriarchal gaze. And so there's room to, I think, open up to teaching and expedient like breakthroughs when you start juxtaposing these two things together, like playing with the, the breast implants, the red lips, the long hair, the, and, and yet not playing into. Mm. It's, so it sounds like you're talking about, and, and this is, you know, a non-controversial, very, very obvious thing. I think a lot of people will have seen growing up, like the epic commodification of especially female sexuality, posters, billboards, all of those things. But you're talking about this, this almost absorbed perspective that I guess men and women, but you're speaking, it sounds like from like the, the woman's perspective being like, well, if this is now what is if this is what's defined as hot in regards to the male's gaze, as you're saying it, and what men think is attractive, then there can be that tendency within women to, to get, um, to gain their value from the approval Mm -hmm. of that system or the people within it as well. And maybe the men are also handed this gaze as well by it's sounding like when you're talking about commodification by the profit metric the profit motive of a system that goes well we obviously like women's sexuality is like i was watching russell brand talk about this and he was talking about like how potent and intriguing women's sexuality is and i guess the marketing machine went all right great let's take that and make money from it but it also requires it also has that effect of women getting their value from like what an external approval Mm -hmm. to fit a system that has been designed for profit and by the male gaze does that sound about right yeah yeah and just to make it really simple from my experience if i could share because i've had breast implants twice and one of the questions I saw pop in is uh, George said and asked, like, is it possible to play with without playing into? And I think what he's getting at is, is it possible to play with without having breast implants? Or can you have to have breast implants in order to play into? And yeah. the reason I can speak so freely about this, because I've had breast implants, I've not had breast implants, I've had them put back in, I've had different sizes. And so I've kind of experienced um, this process from a lot of different sides and it's given me diverse perspective. So the first time I got breast implants, I was way too young. In my opinion, I was just turned 19. And it was all about how I looked on the outside. I wanted to appear hot to the male gaze. I wanted to be considered hot. And I, and I got excited about thinking about how men would look at me. And so it was all about the externals. It was all about imagining how I would be perceived 
with these breast implants. And it was like, I, it wasn't an embodied experience of me and in my body. It was a, a delight in being objectified, honestly, like at 19 years old, it was like I wanted to be objectified. Like detached from like you as a whole person, objectified being you are just your physical object. Yep. And I, cause I, at that time I hadn't done any of the healing from my sexual trauma. And so my body didn't belong to me. I didn't consider my body was mine. I didn't know how to be in my body. I, um, I lived in this world of imagination and projection and thoughts and wondering about other people's perspectives and how they thought of me. I really was, cons- you know, thought a lot about how did men think of me? And I just lived in my head and I, my body wasn't safe. I didn't know my sexuality belonged to me. I, it wasn't about pleasure for me. It was really centered around, um, I found my value from these externals. And so that was the first experience of getting breast implants at 19. And I got them removed at 29. And so I had them in for 10 years and I got them removed because there was an, a problem with one of them. I had had my son breastfed, you know, and now you could see that one of the breast implants had folded in on itself and it was a disaster. And so I needed to get them removed. And, and my plan was always to get them put back in because I just, I liked and was comfortable and was familiar with big boobs by that time. But I decided to give my body some time and it was actually a period of time when I was leaning into my faith and opening up to this uh, relationship with God and and actually unpacking the the wounds, the trauma that I had experienced in my life and I was on an inward journey of healing. And so the message I felt was like, let's just be with your body as it is. And so instead of getting breast implants put back in, I was just, I will, it wasn't my natural breasts anymore because they were pretty beat up. They were scarred up and there was, there was a problem when they removed one. So I had seroma and internal scarring and it was a mess. But it, during that time, it was five years of doing a lot of inner healing work, of, of healing from the sexual trauma I had experienced in my teenage years, of really coming to understand who I am and my value in this world that had nothing to do with my physical appearance and everything to do with uh, my soul. You know, the soul has intrinsic value. All life is sacred. And so that was a five-year journey for me. And uh, along that way, I, there was a time when I thought I would never get them put back in. I was very much involved in the evangelical church in that phase of life, and there was a lot of judgment. And I, and I really was trying my best to, um, to obey or be obedient as the, a good kind of Christian woman. Describe that, that, yeah, that world for me that you, like say, the evangelical Christian world. What, what's that world like to exist within like, I guess, what is it at its best and then at its worst for you? Uh, at its best, there was a beautiful community experience of sharing in the spirit and being able to, to have a life where you shared in this depth and this beauty and the work of God with other people. At its, at its best. And so I loved, um, I love being, you know, what was the phrase we used to say all the time? Um, doing life together. That was the evangelical phrase, doing life together. And at its best, like that's what we're made for. We're, we crave that. We need that as human beings, that 
that element of community and people who really are your family and you get to partner with God with and all the beautiful things. At its worst, it's there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of policing. There's a lot of shaming. Like and behavioral policing. Yeah. Yeah. And spiritual manipulation. And so I very quickly realized <laughs> what was going on in a lot of ways around the spiritual manipulation where someone, and this is an example, like someone hears a word for you. It's like they heard God, God's word for you. And right. um, God was speaking to them about you on your behalf. And it was something about you're going the wrong way or you are being led astray. And, and it was this insinuation that you couldn't trust the way God was speaking in your life or the way that God was leading you and that somehow you were doing it wrong. You were doing it being, being a Christian wrong. And, um, you know, when I, when I had experienced a lot of healing and really felt led by God, one of the things he was leading me into or my relationship with the spirit was this permission to permission to do whatever I wanted with my body, that there wasn't this rule. There wasn't this, um, it didn't make me any less of a Christian to get breast implants again. It didn't make me any more of a Christian to have them taken out. Like there was this like stripping away of these weird, uh, these weird rules around what it means to be a Christian and what it doesn't and who belongs and who doesn't. And as I grew closer to God, I just felt there was so much grace and permission and delight and joy of just saying, it all belongs. What do you desire? It all belongs. What do you desire? And so I decided to get my breast implants put back in, this time a smaller version, if you can believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was really like this grace, just being like, I was at that time, I think 34. I had just had my second daughter and it was just such a beautiful experience of I'm allowed to do whatever I want with my body. And it had nothing to do with how I wanted the men to see me this time around or how even my husband, my husband loved me in all my ways. He loved me with the men, with them out. Like he just loved me and I love me for me. And it was really about, ooh, I got to experience and being in this body where I felt voluptuous. I got to, I love the way that my breasts feel. I got to feel just full and like very womanly in this other way when I got them taken out, I had a lot of scarring and there was, um, there was some deformity. And it was one of the things that was the spiritual manipulation is like a Christian woman said to me, that was punishment for getting them done in the first place. Whoa. That's pretty old Testament of God. Just cursing people's boob jobs. Just be like, and you get scarring and you get scarring. And I was like, really quick. I'm like, I don't really think that's the way God works. And so, but it was like, I had internalized this idea that there was something, I did something bad. I shouldn't have Mm -hmm. gotten breast implants at 19. And therefore I, my penance was to live with this this deformity for the rest of my life. And I remember just God being like, you're young, you're in your thirties. Like you get to feel however you want to feel like go get breast implants. Like, and so this time around I I saw a woman plastic surgeon and she really heard me and, and saw me and I felt, um, seen and like a whole person working with her. The first time I got them done, I worked with a male plastic surgeon. I didn't do any screening or I didn't, look around very hard to find the right doctor, but he definitely gave me the breast that he wanted. He didn't give me the breast that I necessarily wanted because I didn't know at 19. And so the experience of 
being 19 and getting breast implants and then having them removed at 29 and then get them, getting them put back in at 34, uh, I've gotten to experience all these different ways. And so I don't have any judgment for women. And this is just one example, breast implants, but it's whether you dye your hair or whether you decide to get Botox, like I really feel like it's a woman's journey. And one of the things that aggravates me the most and saddens me the most is this feeling that we need to police each other, mm-hmm. that somehow we, we know better for each other. And it's like, isn't it hard enough to just be human and figure out what's right for you? I mean, I feel like that's a full-time job for me is like figuring out like my path. And like, I really have no idea what's right for anyone else. Like it's a full-time job, just figuring out what's right for me. And so that's kind of been my, my, my place and peace with it. Like I'm, I'm walking with the spirit in the way that I walk with the spirit. It's just my journey and it doesn't have to be what every woman does or it, it, I don't know. It doesn't have to work for anyone else, but it's, I just want to empower women to trust themselves and to know that uh, making a mistake, whatever, you know, a failure or a, whatever that we label as a wrong choice, like that's not the end of the world. You know, was it a mistake for me to get breast implants at 19? Maybe, but it was also part of my path and it, it taught me something. And so I, I, I really am not as so afraid of failure. I think it's, I'd rather avoid it, right? It's, it's, yeah. I don't want the pain that comes from making mistakes. But as I've also learned through enough mistakes, mistakes in my life that um, there's, it's not the end of the world. And for me, the, what would be far worse is to live my whole life and never taking a risk and never trusting myself. It would be far worse to be 80 years old and feel like I never lived life to the full. Mm. So I'd rather err on the side of living life to the full and being on the, you know, maybe a little out there than, um, yeah, than doing safe. I'm hearing a lot of this disentanglement of things that generally go together or are quickly categorized as good or bad. It's definitely a strong tendency within religious circles and non-religious circles to really try and label things the good and bad. So it's like, and cosmetic surgery often has the strong, just like if you do it, you must be insecure and wanting to fulfill, wanting to look hot to others and, and all of these things. But I'm hearing you disentangle the, I guess, the morality policing, which once again, we can come down hard on religion for doing this, which I think we see it as you experienced it evidently in, in this behavioral policing. Uh, but I think it also in the secular world of like, oh, well, they must, like you said, they must be shallow if they, if they do this. And I'm hearing you disentangle one expression and action from this black or white morality judgment and i think this this tendency of society to just try and find unifying rules for things to go well if if male beauty standards have set up these impossible standards that women don't feel like they can live up to and therefore have to uh, do surgeries to modify their body to live up to these standards then therefore it is bad but i'm hearing you kind of say personalize it and say well for me in this scenario that was the case but then for me in this other scenario this was the case i'm i'm hearing this like complex disentanglement of the things we lump together 
Yeah, and that's just like how consciousness evolves and and we awaken, things become more nuanced. And at a certain level of consciousness there, it's easier to have rules and black and white thinking and something to grab hold of. We feel safe, you know, knowing what's right, what's wrong, what we should do, which way we should go. But as we deepen our relationship with soul, with spirit, things become way more nuanced and there's a lot more to explore in the gray. And we realize there are very few, um, at least in my experience, in my experience, I realize there are very few absolutes and really it comes down to presence and what's alive in every moment and what we carry into every moment and how much, yeah, what is informing our decisions. It's What idea did you come to accept or reject if you can think of something that began that journey that shifted your perspective towards your body and, uh, and maybe allowed you to identify the fact that validation was coming from the external like is there anything that that allowed this i like you you talked about your your spiritual journey and transformation in then how you see yourself is there an idea or something that happened that began that journey if there's like an idea that people could accept that that would shift how they view things I think it was the separation from shame like that was the idea it was to recognize shame wherever it was popping up in my life and um, to no longer buy into it, to no longer agree with it. It's as simple as that. And it's like the shame is the separation from self, from soul, from God, from body, from, so to just say like, no, I'm not going to live that way. Even if it means I, I don't know the other path yet and it may get a little confusing and wayward, like I'm not going to live and be guided by shame anymore. I'm not going to be coerced or convinced by shame anymore. And I think it's really natural as we grow and heal is like the pendulum shifts and all across the other side. And so there was a time in my life where I really rejected uh, beauty standards altogether. You know, I didn't wear any makeup and I shaved the side of my head and I cut off all my hair and I dyed it brown. And I think it's really, really helpful to completely outwardly reject whatever it is, you know, we think is causing the shame. And so it's kind of like the complete like deconstruction and no longer be believing in God at all. But that necess- that isn't necessarily where you are meant to stay. Like maybe you get to reintegrate or integrate and reconstruct and build from something that's more authentic to you. And so I feel like the journey in my life has always been like this is the pendulum swings and then it doesn't stop there though. It doesn't stay on the other opposite, like in opposition to the thing anymore. But there's like this beautiful integration. And so in many ways, I look like I did. I look more like I did at 19 than I did at 35. But I'm an entirely different woman in my, you know, in my inner world. is very, very different. It actually has nothing to do with the outsides. And so we don't fix the insides by the outsides. It's just not how it does it. You can take your breast implants out. You can completely disregard any traditional standards of beauty, whatever those are. Um, and you can still be buying into the patriarchy. You can still be uh, in feeling that shame. And so it's it's really about this radical choice of self-love and self-acceptance 
at every step of the way. And that's the healing and that's the power. And that's, it's also the radical thing that would heal the world. <laughs> we just decided to love and accept and, and work with what is right now. And, and I don't know, like, just like be curious, like let's come into this moment and not assuming we know which way is the best way for any woman or for ourselves. And let's just explore it. Like that's, that's my take on things, Conrad. It's about presence and learning how to be present again. I feel like you've half answered it, but just to just to be more clear, what then sets you free from judging others, I suppose? I'm hearing in what you're saying is, in you're saying like, I'm still working this out. I'm not really sure. And it sounds like if you're coming from a perspective that says, listen, like I'm just exploring and experimenting, is that? Is that something that sets you free from, because we all have the tendency and uh, I mean, I can't really speak to a woman's experience, but we all have this tendency to, to police people and, and say, well, you shouldn't be doing that and oh, you shouldn't be getting surgery and you shouldn't be getting Botox. Um, and, and I think at least talking to my wife, like that, that sometimes occurs within like female circles and things like that of, of like policing each other as who you should be as women maybe maybe the i mean the stereotype of the feminist might say to you like i can't believe that you're even beginning to buy into a a beauty standard consumer system and you appear to look exactly like the the stereotype beauty standard like thin blonde boobs all those things and so that would be one say stereotype of feminist saying that and then maybe someone else is saying like no no like you can do this or do that. Like what, what I guess sets you free from playing that game? The shoulds. I don't play a should game with anybody. If I catch myself playing shoulds with myself, like that's an indication of where there's work to do because shoulds are the shame again. And this is where we, it's literally a shock to the system. The first time we experienced shame as toddlers and we all did because all it took was a no. You know, we were exploring something. We were curious and a parent said no. And they said it maybe out of love or out of fear because they didn't want us to harm ourselves. But still that no was an experience of shame that separated us from this feeling that everything was possible. Everything is permissible. It's a world to explore and it's all good. But when we heard the no, that was a, a moment in our bodies where we constricted and our nervous system literally came down around and collapsed. And there was a... a a visceral experience of not belonging in the same way to the world anymore. And that not belonging is the root of all of our suffering. And so the should is such a powerful place to reconcile. And so I don't have any shoulds for other people. And where I find that in myself, I try to, to really examine. And there's places to unpack because it's there's, you know, there's a lot of different directions to go, but I really feel like that should is very violent. And it's the violence that is the shame, that is the not belonging, that is then causes us to want to do these things, to seek approval through our sexuality alone, for instance, is one example, or through making tons of money if you're a man and wanting to drive the hot car because you don't really feel like you belong or will be valued if you don't have that money and power. I mean, it's that, that, split that happened so long ago that we're just trying to come back home to ourselves and each other. And so for me, it's that simple. It's like where there is shame, that's a place to be reconciled. And 
an, a good indication of where the shame is or where it could breed is any shoulds in our life. So when you hear your, when you hear yourself saying, oh, if only I was this, I should be that. And when you hear other people saying, oh, you should, you're saying it's more of an indication of the deep sense within yourself that you are not good enough and you don't belong and no modification to the external or no externalization on somebody else. Because I guess it seems to me like that should, like you should be this, that someone says seems to be, so there's the modification of a physical uh, appearance or behavior or action in the world to then be more like what we should be to belong better but then it's almost like this judgmentalism or at least this you should be like this seems to be a similar action that says I can't like I've modified myself maybe as much as I can to fit in or maybe I haven't and I'm trying to modify those around me to fit this narrative like if I've discovered that by me rejecting beauty standards set by a culture that's the way I feel like I need to be in order to belong more but then if I see someone else not doing that um, it's the same tendency I'm describing it's I guess within religion to say the world needs to be more like me and is that about me belonging (laughs) I think it's the fear of not belonging it's like so it's is like it's a simple going back to the body And I don't think we're going to solve any problem by trying to control anybody else. But it's, I'm like a good hippie at heart, like a big hippie (laughs) at heart where I really do feel like love will solve everything. Like I really do, like if we, but we got to learn how to love ourselves first. And that's a lifetime work in some ways of learning how to truly accept and approve of ourselves. And then we can offer that same spaciousness and compassion to others, but we can't really offer that to others until we've done that work ourselves. And if we do that work, I have a very ideal, beautiful, idealistic picture of the world where it would be much better. And so anything that's like against like an energy of, uh, even because I have a big rebel inside of me and there's a time and a place to rebel and there's a time and a place to be against and be stand up and in resistance. But I never, I don't believe we're meant to stay there. I believe we're meant to be integrating back into a place of love and harmony. And so as a, as a way to live my life, I don't want to be against anything. Like, I don't want to like have that, like in my body, that tension around you're wrong, you're wrong. I'm right. Or, you know, that I feel that in my body as a, as a limitation, as a contraction, as a tension. And, and really what I want is to feel a spaciousness. I want to feel a freedom. And I, and I believe that when I feel that spaciousness and freedom, it allows other people when they're in my field and with me to tap into that memory of belonging, of freedom, of of accepting themselves, of loving themselves, which is like there, but we've been separated from it for a long time. You're talking about a like a physical feeling of when you feel that spaciousness, like physically you're talking about? Yeah, because for me, like the wisdom comes to the body and it's like there's all these different ways of knowing, but we rely so heavily on the intellect, which is where morality lives, like right, right wrong. Like, let me it clear, you know, it's like it's very clear, like 
and we think it's very clear, you know, intellectually using our rational mind and using our logic and as if that's the way to to be human, the only way to be human. But there's another way of knowing that's both heart-centered and then there's a deeper way that's primal. And it's barely much about the sensation in your body. And it's a wisdom that teaches us, for me at least, like where there is life flowing or where there is like, like, like almost like kinking the hose and life is no longer allowed to flow there. And it's we see this in nature, like where, where water is running, where energy can flow. There's, there is... Um, wildlife, there's animals come to drink from these rivers, but where there is stagnation, that's where the flies gather. That's where there's like death. And so we, it's like, how much can we become like nature to allow things to flow, to allow there to be what you're doing with the ideas podcast, a space where it all belongs and we can communicate and the way we share energy in this space where it's we're allowed to be open with it and communicate and talk like that's one way to allow for this flow but at the end of the day everything is energy and just to notice it's a good practice as you live your life when does your body feel like that field of possibility and goodness and safety and flow and when does your body literally feel like contraction um stuckness resistance tension and and notice like what is that teaching you or what is that showing you and for me when when i feel that judgment come up around people i feel the kink of the hose like i am no longer connected to god in the same way i'm also no longer connected to my body in the same way it's almost like i live in a really small i become very small my energy becomes very small and constricted and bleh, I don't like it. So it's as simple as like I- I'm I'm probably I'm probably pushing you to use the language of the cerebral mind because it's almost a lack of imagination for say someone like me to really understand what you're talking about when you're talking about like energy and, and feelings and flow. Talk to like someone like me who's like existence is entirely in the in the head language center. Are you talking about like an awareness of physical feeling and tension and like, yeah, what do you mean when you're saying everything is energy? (laughs) Conrad, everything is energy. (laughs) Everything is energy. Everything is energy. It's just money is energy. Sex is energy. Uh, Emotion is energy. God is energy. And I mean, this is like, there's the... One way you can think of energy as information that's moving. Okay. So I like that definition. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm communicating something to you. Yes. And the way that my, my, I use my hands and the way I use my face, it's communicating something to you and emotion communicates, but also sensation communicates. And, And so you can think of it as information. It's, it's moving, it's allowed to move and it's, there's allowed to be an exchange or a dialogue. Um, it's allowed. I mean, basically energy that's allowed to move is healthy energy. Mm. When and, and you can think of it as conversations. When you're not allowed to have certain conversations, mm. that's like a problem in a culture, a problem in a family. That's when we start to break down because the information, the energy isn't allowed to be what it is. So does that help, Conrad? That, that is... The best definition of energies 
I've ever heard. Because Cam and I, we used to sit there being like, what? What are people talking about when they're saying this stuff? But I, like, as far as I understand it, I know someone in the comments was like, when I'm saying I live in my head, they're like, no, I want to challenge that. And, and with your definition of energies as information, transfer of information, suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, like I get, I receive information from my wife all the time, from, from you right now, from like so many un, like, and I don't even process it in the language center. It's all kind of coming and you're pointing to the awareness of the other ways that my body feels safe with certain people and I'm open and free in this area but not here and some person I'm around I'm just flipping tense with all the time and I have no idea why like yeah and so the conscious mind is like where most of the the western world really prizes like the rational mind the logic mind that can only take in seven plus or minus two bits of information at a time but the unconscious mind which is many ways is the body can take in millions of bits of information Mm -hmm. at a time So there's like when we are relying solely on the way of knowing through the intellect, we are really cutting ourselves off from so much other wisdom and so much other information. And we're not really cutting ourselves off because as you say, like you are getting information from Mm. people just by their presence. If it's safe, do you feel like you can open up to them? And so appreciating body, appreciating these other ways of knowing is about bringing conscious value to these other ways of receiving information and using it as a way to make a decision. When we talk about this inner world, the spiritual world, um, you see the tendency within, uh, I can only speak to Christianity because that's what I'm familiar with. You see like that tendency within religion to, and it, it kind of embodies it perfectly when it, when it uses the text, like the flesh is evil above all things. And it, this is this separation of like the spiritual and maybe some of the stuff you're describing, like that inner knowing, that inner belonging, like how can we solve what's within? And what that can often lead to, at least what I've seen, is this, is this split of hierarchy that goes, well, the inner spiritual, the Holy Spirit, prayer life, the journey, that is the most important thing. And therefore, your physical appearance, your physical manifestation in the world, how you move about in your physical body. Well, your body is, it's lesser and, you know, sex because that is like phys- pure, like very physical. They go, oh, well, you got to be careful of like that physical thing. And obviously then appearance seems to be the lowest rung on the hierarchy because it is when you divorce it when you pull it all apart like the Western way does to look at things, they dissect it all and go, well, what's this in this part? When you pull appearance apart, you, the tendency is to go, well, it's just superficial and everything you've described as being like, you don't have all the information if it's just physical. You don't have all this stuff if it's just physical. So talk to me about how we reintegrate that physical because I, I suppose that's where we started. We started with the, with the physical and then went into the unspoken, the spiritual, the journey that happens inside. And your journey seems to be physically started with cosmetic surgery. And now you're in a space where you went back to that. How do we reintegrate the physical appearance in order to not end up with this hierarchy of good spiritual and bad physical? 
I think we just say it all belongs. I mean, it's all, it's all a value. It's all, you know, information. It's all something to play with. It's all a part of who we are. And so part of what the patriarchy does is it likes to split apart, categorize and separate. But my work is around wholeness. And so it's about bringing everything to the table, especially the things that we've dismissed or devalued. And so in the spiritual realms, we have dismissed the, the body and appearance as just a part of the body. Appearance, I, I like to think of it as self-expression. And so it's, it, it's an important aspect of spirituality if we're going to be grounded in this world. And, and this is what I'm here for, is to help women who want to live life to the full and live fully self-expressed and not be a monk in a cave. You know, I'm not here. I think there's beautiful many paths to the human experience. I just happen to be a path that's for women who want it all to belong and to be reconciled. But there, you know, the path of maybe a nun is a different path. So I, I do think that anywhere we've tend to reject, anything we've tended to dismiss or separate from, like sexuality from spirituality or appearance from um, depth of character, that's an opportunity to bring it back into the same circle and just like play with it there as if it all has equal value, equal merit, and just to see what happens when we don't judge one above the other, but just see it all as a form of self-expression. How do we, I guess, there is this idea that I think is very prevalent, which came across in, you know, a lot of the natural assumptions we make and the confessions of assumptions that we had at the beginning, is that anything to do with the outside appearance, because it is the, the visual and the perception that is being put from one to the other, if, if you're saying that physical appearance, like what else can it look like and it might be a lack of imagination for this story here, but the story of appearance is you do it for others. So, for in, like, how do, how do you integrate a, this or expand this story of appearance that isn't just putting on makeup, changing your physical appearance, if not, like for you, exa for example, why do you appear the way you do, I suppose, if not for how we are perceived? Hmm. Well, I, I've allowed myself to explore with different ways of being self-expressed. And so it's the it's less to do with I have to show up like this in order to feel good about myself and more to do with like, how do I want to hold myself today? Like the insides and the outsides matching, like so as above, so below. And so what does that mean for me today? And to give myself and uh, give other women a lot of permission to play with that. So, I mean, I think because I've had the experience of feeling very sexy and alive and joyful and happy when I had black hair and it was like shaved like a boy and, you know, I had it was like literally like my the side of my head was shaved. I didn't feel any less of a woman. I didn't feel any less worthy. I didn't feel any less alive. And so it's just like, it's all the same to me. Like it's all, it's not like anyone has a, is it has more value in terms of like femininity for me personally. It's just, what do I want right now? And that has everything to do with like 
and my choice, my choice. It has is, you know, I think it's a hard question yes, to it is. to yeah. understand because it's like you're it's like assuming. I think this is what's so crazy and wonderful about the question is that it's assuming that it's how we express ourselves in any form. Let's just take appearance as one way, but music. If we're an artist and we're going to create something, whether it's a piece of music or a piece of writing or a painting or a photograph, that has something to do with how we want to communicate and and something that is meaningful to us, hopefully. you know. And we want to, we're not just doing it for, um, we're selling out, you know, for Target or something, we could create the same piece of art and, and it doesn't really have any emotional value to us or have any deeper significance. And it's, it looks like it looks, or, you know, an artist can create something that has a lot of significance and depth that Target may, may or may not appreciate, may or may not want. And so it's like, it's, it's really about centering your experience and coming back to what is this experience for you? And, you know, regardless if someone comes along and gives you approval for it, like, do you want to show up this way? And, and it's, and it's not assuming that you need to show up in any certain way at all, but you get full choice in how you want to show up. And this might be a rabbit hole or a very like complex discussion. Um, When you say like, we have the choice, whether we buy into these perceptions and, and how we want to show up and what we want to play with. Um, I want to throw a massive spanner in there and see where you take it. Yeah. With the, with the idea of our choice, like we get to choose, what do you, what do you say to the idea and those who might suggest it that because of this patriarchal system that we exist within, it has handed us certain expressions. Like when you say, it feels sexy. There's certain ideas and categories that have been handed to us by a system that's almost inescapable. So when you say we have a choice, what do you say to someone that's like, well, we don't really have a choice because if I want to show up in the world sexy, I need to appear like this. So my definitions of what I find to be sexy and what I then choose to do has been handed to me. So even though I might be thinking I'm making the choice, I've actually been on some level primed to believe that women who are beautiful look a certain way. What's your, where do you take that idea? You're not wrong. You're not wrong at all, but consciousness makes it yours. And so when I consciously show up in the world in this way, it's now mine. It's no longer the patriarchy's like version. It's not a Barbie doll that I'm, I feel like I have to be in order to be approved of or to experience love and belonging. I experience love and belonging and therefore get to play with showing up in the world in this way so we can have these conversations. Because if I didn't look like this, would this conversation be happening? No. You'd be assumed. You know, if I had a shaved head and and I was saying feminine wholeness looks like rejecting all of the beauty standards, it would be like, okay, yeah, of course, you know, like that's, it wouldn't be an interesting place. And so I feel for me and my calling is to be the juxtaposition, is to actually create the tension by, and I use like, just like an actor would or a performing artist would, like the appearance is a tool for conversation, for dialogue, for opening things up. And so that's why in one of the, the beginning questions around like, do you use 
sex to profit. It's like, yes, I want to, to spark a conversation and I want to open up this space and to, there's an attention grabbing aspect to it so that we can go deeper, so that we can go deeper. So consciousness makes it yours means whatever, whatever, choose anything, choose a style of music, choose a way of holding yourself appearance. Like you can be doing it because that's how you're programmed to be. And like, I guess religion is a perfect example. Like you could be following Jesus because that's what you were taught from the time, you know, you were in your mother's womb and it doesn't really feel like yours. Or you could be following Jesus and have gone through your, your own radical conversion because it's like your authentic choice. And so it's the consciousness you bring to it that makes it your own. Until you've done that work to reconcile like how you feel, what your experience is, do the deeper unpacking, it's not really yours. And so, you know, in 19, my breasts weren't really mine. I did it for a male's approval or a delight in me instead of my own delight in me. And so for all the things, I think our spirituality is number one. If you grew up in the church and it doesn't really feel like yours because it probably isn't yours yet. You haven't done the unpacking or the deconstructing to make it your own. Appearance is the same way. Style, like all of it. Like it's something that we get to unpack and then rebuild. And it's the consciousness that we bring to it that makes it our own. Yeah, I like that. I feel like you've exposed a hidden duality that exists within the conversation that never, it's really hard to explore and unpack and people just, people just make assumptions. Um, and the hidden duality I'm talking about, like the hidden either or good, bad, that's within, that's within this. So someone that would say, well, by you having blonde hair, having fake boobs, being of certain appearance, you're perpetuating a system, right? They, they would say that. But what I'm hearing is you're saying that you're in in some sense like a bridge there are it's it's like uh, i'll use my podcast example everybody's got a bloody podcast i am not unique and so you could easily look at my podcast and go conrad mate joe rogan's out there he's heaps better go listen to him you like it there's no point because there's you know there's better things out there and and my attitude to that is always like well yeah that's true but there are people that are listening to me that would never listen to any of these others. And it might be a small subset, but it's still a subset. And so it's like my positioning, it's like what unique, what's unique that I have? Like, why should I have these conversations and have this podcast? I would say it's because my positioning and just because of my positioning, I've got a little corner that perhaps the massive spotlight of like the Joe Rogans, the Sam Harris's, all these great podcasters they just would never or could never reach and, and that's okay. And so in that sense, it's like you're saying this, there's the one sense of saying, okay, you're perpetuating it, but you're also having conversations that never would have occurred if you weren't utilizing these forms of expression that have been so, I will say demonized. Perpetuating blonde hair, perpetuating big boobs, like these aren't the enemy. Like, and so because I chose to show up with big boobs and blonde hair, I am perpetuated what? I'm just blonde hair and big boobs are great. So are small boobs and dark hair. Like all, all of it is beautiful. All of it is sexy. It's like the presence a woman brings to her, to her body and her appearance that makes her so sexy. And so what I am saying is that it's not about the appearance that, that's perpetuating the problem. It's this idea that there's only one way of being sexy 
and someone else decides that for you. That's the problem. When a woman occupies her body, abides in her body, and she owns her sexuality, it really doesn't matter what color hair she has or how big a breast she has or how large her ass is or how many rolls or wrinkles. Like it's her energy that is that power. And so all I'm doing is playing with like what's been a given and saying, yeah, I don't agree with you. I'm there in in sense, I don't agree with the idea that a woman has to look like this, that I'm choosing to look like or not look like this. It's like both can, both can belong. You can have big boobs and blonde hair and be intellectual and have Mm -hmm. deep conversations and unpack the patriarchy. And you can have um, a shaved head and flat breasts and be a total bombshell sex goddess. Hmm. And I think the interesting thing for me as we wrap up this conversation is the fact that this conversation even exists. And I know for a fact, this will be one of my highest listened to episodes just by looking at my general trends. It exposes something very interesting because we're not sitting here talking about how you're perpetuating as a stereotype of straight teeth. Like how dare you sit there with your straight white teeth that I've had braces, you've had braces, a cosmetic procedure that's required like, man, it was bloody painful for me, three years looking weird to just modify my body, so to speak, to look more acceptable and maybe like accept myself a little more. Um, But it's interesting, this hidden, unexplainable, like I've asked this question to a few people when like leading up being like, what is the problem with cosmetic surgery? And they're like, well, well and we have these stereotypes. But then I'm like, but I've got it. I've done it. I got these two are fake. These two teeth here. These are straight. I'm like, maybe I get my teeth whitened because cultures kind of deem that acceptable. But it's almost like in this conversation, you've exposed this, these hidden stereotypes and these hidden um, assumptions we have about these other things. Like no one assumes that if you've got straight teeth, you must be non-intelligent. But you're saying that that's an often... Uh, assumption that people would have about somebody who maybe gets fake boobs or or uh, Botox. Yeah. And the problem is, is like none of this on either side of these conversations is going to heal the major issues in the world. Like hmm. whether a woman decides to get breast implants or not, isn't going to end racism, isn't going hmm. to end oppression. We need to like hmm. go the system itself is that breaking down these um, ideas about who who's gets to decide like who's worthy who's not worthy who's um, respectable who's not respectable all of these things is what I'm, I'm I would like to uh, get beyond and say your self-expression however you want to show up in the world you still deserve safety you still deserve respect. Like there's nothing about like, so yeah, I, I it's like all of this is really fun and important because it's hopefully pointing to the real issues where uh, it's yeah. not about appearance. It's about this tendency to judge and should and mm. shame people. This is the mm. problem. This is the only problem. Going back to our earlier part of the conversation, it's the shame piece that separates people. It's the shame that is the violence. And you're saying this game helps nobody because there's deeper work that this is a symptom. Even this conversation on some level exposes the symptom of the deeper shame and judgment game we all play. 
Yeah, if, if for, for, for example, if women are policing themselves on how much they eat during the day and the best part of their day is concerned with counting calories and how much they weigh, how much of their creative energy are they wasting? How much are they not being able to contribute to society, to the world, to honoring their own gifts that they've been given? I remember when I woke up from that, like early in my 20s, I was like, wow, if there was such thing as an enemy, he really has us nailed. Like to just distract us with these like things like counting calories so that we won't actually give the best energy to the gifts God has created us to give. And so same thing when we're policing each other around uh, our looks or our appearance, like really we're spending our resources on policing one another on these things when there's racism happening in our world, when there is poverty and children are dying of hunger. It's like, wow, what a great distraction. And I'm not saying this is, you know, to like, to, this is my work, you know, Conrad, yeah. so I'm not saying yeah. it's a bad podcast to have. You know, like <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Oh, I'll just go home now. I, yeah. it's, perfect. it's perfect to expose, like we would rather mm. judge people we yeah. would rather shame people than really look at this darker thing happening that is about shame and devaluing and dehumanizing people that at some level, like that's what we're doing when we judge, you know, and it's like everything from racism to deciding that a woman with breast implants isn't as intellectual or spiritual as a woman without it. Like it's a way that we judge and we dehumanize that is needs to stop. Mm. And now when you're using the word energy, I'm like, oh, like nonverbal information communication. I'm like, nice. Yes. So thanks for that. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> my uh, vocabulary and, and definitions have been well expanded. So I feel like I feel like I've understood like a, a great deal. Yeah. You're, you're talking about there are things that we can journey through that don't require and, and there are things that take away from the deeper, more important human journey that we are all on together. So we can either be on it and policing each other and waste our energy that way, or we can be a part of community together, growing together, doing work to accept ourselves, to heal the shame within ourselves. And then maybe we won't want to engage in the, in the, some of the behaviors that maybe perpetuate the shame in other people. Yeah, it's all just about love, Conrad. It's all just about love. Yeah. <laughs> Learning to love yourself, accept ourselves, and then, you know, it's really easy to love others when we've learned how to love ourselves. Like the hardest thing is to learn how to love and accept ourselves. But when we've done that, then we become a field where other people can experience their own self-love and freedom. So that's my whole, that's my spiel. That's all I have for you. I Yes, I think you've summed it up very well. How do you think other people might be viewing what you're saying and what you're communicating? I don't know. I don't know. But I don't care. Mm. <laughs> I don't care. And I, um, I really spent a lot of time as a four, those who understand the Enneagram or into the Enneagram, the fours are all about being understood. And so there was a good part of my life where I just wanted to know how I was perceived. And I really oh. wanted to be understood. And now my goal isn't to be understood, but my goal is to serve, which totally changes where the power is. Like no one has power over me when my goal is to serve. 
if my goal is to be understood, then I'm giving my power to everyone else. And so I am here not to be understood, but to serve. And I have the power. I hold my power. I perceive myself. I approve of myself. I see myself clearly. And so where, how everyone else perceives me is how they perceive themselves they get, or the aspects that they've denied in themselves or they've judged. Everything is a mirror. Everything, every relationship is a mirror. And what we deny, reject, judge, shame, hate, and someone else is a part of ourselves that we just haven't come home to a reconciled. And so, you know, women that judge and judge me, like they haven't yet come home to maybe the, the part of them that's vain or the part of them that is wants to be like a voluptuous, like their sexuality on display as a, you know, breasts up to their chin. Like there's all these shadow pieces that are really fun to work with. And we're so, we're so afraid of our shadow, but I've done so much shadow work in my life. And now it's just something I'm able to play with. And it doesn't scare me if someone sees me as, uh, you know, gosh, what was one of the things like profiting off my sexuality or just doing it for attention. Like people can yeah. say that about me and I'm still okay. Like I don't, you know, so it's like the work of using your judgments as a mirror of seeing where you are judging aspects of yourself or separated from aspects of yourself and using every trigger that someone else outside of you is causing you to be offended in some way and using that as a mirror of like, what part of me am I so afraid to own? Morgan, you've given us a lot to think about. Do you have any, anything you want to add or any final thing? To clarify anything or <laughs> I feel like we need to do this whole podcast again. Oh, I no. feel like I, I you know like <laughs> Well you got so one sentence to fix it all. <laughs> um, but that's just it. Like there's the, what we're talking about in some ways is very, very simple. It's about love yeah. and about acceptance and the ways that we come home to loving, accepting ourselves, shadow and light. That's it. And they, that's it. And so that's the that's the thing that we're all here to do. And I just happen to be offering as a way of enticement to the process, like these these scandalous, like showing up yes. in a scandalous way and yes. and really to invite those who are have ears to hear or eyes to see that have a desire to come home to all parts of who they are and to actually live in this in the way where their energy feels like freedom. And there's fun to be had there. There's connection there. And they can go through the world without feeling separate from everyone around them, but feel more connected to everyone around them. Like I'm, I'm, offering, I'm offering that freedom. I'm offering a way that the world doesn't show that you don't have to fit any box in order to be whole. You don't have to look a certain way in order to be whole. You don't have to perform to be whole, you are whole and you get to have fun expressing that wholeness however you like. <laughs> With breast implants and blonde hair or shaved head and, you know, flat chest, it doesn't matter. Thanks so much for just being so open, honest and, and generous with your time and taking taking the time to, to talk to us. If people want to follow your work, where can they do that? You can follow me on Instagram, Morgan AC Soul. 
or you can get on my newsletter, which is a great place to kind of go deeper into these conversations. So morgandacecil.com, you can get access to like an email series on the emerging woman and what it's like if you're a woman, probably not interested if you're a man, sorry, but you can follow my husband who talks about the masculine journey, rcecil at gmail, uh, rcecil on Instagram. But if you're a woman and you would like to explore a new kind of womanhood, where there isn't so many rules and so many shoulds, then join join my community, sign up for the email series, do the, yeah, there's a lot of fun resources there for you. Amazing. Now, if you're listening to this and you've made it, you know, over an hour and you just disagree with the whole thing, or maybe you agreed with the whole thing, it doesn't, it's not really the point. It doesn't matter. If you made it to the end, like, congratulations, well done. Um, Hopefully, you've been given some new ideas to sit with and digest. If you would like to send me an email, that's at ideasdigest at gmail.com. And if you made it to the end, then it's your moral obligation to rate and review the podcast and share it with like your mum or your dad. Hey, this would be a great episode to share with your mum or your dad. Um, it's, it's just what happens when you make it to the end of the episode because, I mean, if you made it this far, surely you can write a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. And we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks so much, Morgan. All right. We we just, we had, welcome, welcome back. We've just, we just wrapped up and we're like, oh no, that was really good. And, and Morgan was saying, oh, I wish, I wish there was a few things that, that we kind of missed because there's so many different areas to go into. And Morgan was, was talking about something to do with boobs and power. And I was like, whoa, I'll stop there. We've got to get this. Got, we've got to capture this. So Morgan, you were you were just talking about like the power of breasts and like I was saying, why is this such a a point of emphasis that we have in society? Like it's it sells products, it does so many things. Like there is this like magnetism and attraction and and something around breasts. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Well, you were saying how how strange it is that you've had cosmetic surgery with your teeth and yet people don't seem to have a problem with that. But women getting breast implants, it's highly charged. There's a lot of opinions about that. And, and I said, well, it's because the women's boobies have so much power and it's a symbol of our sexuality. And in the Taoist philosophy, it literally holds a woman's power. So that means that a woman, because this is a, her breasts are part of her arousal network. And so there is so much pleasure that can be stored in breasts. And so what we forget is that big, you know, big voluptuous boobies, like they're not just pleasing to men, they're pleasing to some women. And some women love big boobs because they love big boobs too. And it's, it's like, there's a voluptuous quality to it. There's a lot of pleasure to it. It's a symbolism of sexuality and pleasure. And so I'm not saying that you have to have big boobs to experience power as a woman, but it is a symbol of it. And so, and there's some women that just prefer and feel very, very, uh, that, that arousal around just the feeling of boobs in their hands, their own breasts in their hands. So like, we can go, <laughs> we can get really kind of fun here, Conrad. But there is understanding that not only are breasts appealing to men, but this is the problem with the male gaze and the male storyline alone. It's like this idea that whatever delights a man is only for a man. Well, it's like there's a lot of women that take delight in their breasts. There's a lot of women that take delight in other women's breasts. There's a lot of there's a pleasure to be had on, on both sides. And so to say that 
to be a, a good feminist, you shouldn't, you know, wear a push-up bra and have fake boobs is really missing the point because boobs aren't just for men. Boobs, breasts, like they're also for a woman, for her to delight in and for her to delight in other women's breasts. And we get to delight in the way they look and the way they feel and the way they make us feel when they're turned on, like the nipple. Gosh, when it's touched and kissed and sucked on, like there's a lot of arousal that happens and a lot of pleasure that a woman can experience. And I think that's the bigger issue is that a woman who's really owning her sexuality is a very powerful woman, a woman who allows herself to experience sexual pleasure, a woman who allows herself to be nourished by that orgasmic energy. That's a very powerful woman. And I think there's a lot of control around that. That's the issue because it's a symbol for what un what's underneath the surface. Like when we celebrate the, the breasts, we're also in some ways celebrating a woman owning her sexuality if a woman chooses to express herself in that way. And so wanting to police other women is really wanting to police how she expresses her sexuality. It's like this fine line of that, that you're really trying to walk with nuance between men wanting women to appear a certain way, have boobs that are a certain way, wear low cut tops for the pleasure of men to check out and things like that. But then there's this, what you're saying is like, just because men find it pleasurable and appealing, there's a, there's problems that come from the dominance of that story and that gaze, but that doesn't necessarily mean, therefore, maybe this is the religious reaction to go top up to here, please don't show too much skin. And it's kind of, they've covered the woman's body and hidden it. What is your, I guess, response or your thoughts to that re that reaction to it that says, well, then hide it. Like if it's a symbol of women's sexuality, I guess, and I'm, as I'm piecing it together as I listen, I guess it's still a form of, of control. It says, well, you're being commodified. Let us now as religious patriarchy, let us protect you, cover that up because it's being commodified and used to... Uh, entice people to buy cars and things like that. So cover it up. And it's like, is it that element of control? What's your opinion on then the inverse of it? Yeah, it's an element of control because like if, if I think a lot of women would agree with me that have, you know, that enjoy, that enjoy a woman's body. Like even if all the men left this planet, like I would definitely delight in boobies. I would definitely delight in other women's breasts and the art of it. I love, I have so many, like paintings and illustrations. I just love the feminine form. And so it really isn't about men, you know? And so I think that's an important part of the conversation when we are exploring, you know, appearance in and of itself is the, that's again, the male bias is assuming that it's for the man alone and the way that we decide to express ourselves or our sexuality. And the thing is like, once we come home to it the consciousness makes it ours like again and again like that's the thing like once we've like really wrestled with the dark and light on something that's the consciousness when we've brought the dark to the light done our own shadow work that is very powerful and we become 
so much we can't you you really can't hold this down like for women like the when because a woman is already a vessel she's already a sanctuary the safe place that is the divine feminine like this is she she can create life like she can bear life she is so powerful and then when she begins to delight in it and her she's not this like demure meek modest thing that's like you know, her whole life is to be obedient, but when she actually is self-expressed and is playful and in funny and a trickster energy and a little bit mischievous and a little bit uncontrollable and wild, like that, like patriarchy doesn't know what to do with that. Patriarchy doesn't know what to do with that. And since they don't know how to live in mystery, they don't know how to live in being, all they know how to do is control and do, it becomes something that they need to tame in order to feel safe. But the woman, that's what's so great about being a woman is that we know very well how to feel safe in mystery. We are mystery. Every month we go through this like wonderful like arc of emotion and we don't know what we're going to feel moment to moment. And this is this beautiful ability to abide with change and suffering and pain and delight and pleasure. And so we, yeah, women are very powerful. <laughs> Talk to me about, I guess women's power and boobs beyond sex because there is the i heard somebody say and it was actually quite interesting there's like women up to a certain age at least from a particular stereotyped male perspective is like if you're sub 30 let's say you're a sex object and then when you have kids well you're purely a utility now and so you've got boobs for sexual pleasure and then boobs just as a purely form of function and so in a, and if they're the, like the two values in a, in a very uh, traditional patriarchal male dominated society where it's like women for like their value comes from their sex appeal and then their value comes as a mother. Talk to me about what's beyond that. What it like boobs that aren't for like sex or function. Like what are they like? Why are they still so powerful, appealing and and. I guess still quite an object of fascination amongst many cultures. Because (laughs) they're allowed to be all of those things. And for a woman to say, I'm allowed to delight in my breast and feel pleasure, feel sexual arousal when they're, when they're, whenever they're touched or caressed or massaged or sucked, like doesn't matter how old I am. Hmm. I still get to experience that orgasmic pleasure and bliss. And coming home to that beautiful gift of belonging to your sexuality, of belonging to your body, and it's not something you age out of. You don't age out of your sexuality Mm -hmm. just because society doesn't see it as a commodity anymore. You still get to enjoy it for yourself. And so the work that I love doing for women is bringing them home to their body, bringing them home to their sexuality, because then they get to appreciate the sacredness of who they are, their orgasmic potential, and if they're mothers, the, 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 the fact that they can nurse and bring life and give food to their babies. And so it's just such a, because it does have this dual function of pleasure and functionality of giving life, like nurturance, like the most potent, like nourishing substance on the planet is breast milk. And it also can create orgasmic bliss because it's connected to our whole sexual, sexual arousal network. So Women can experience orgasm through just being turned on with from their breasts. So there is such a beautiful gift in the breast that it just is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of life. It's a symbol of generative forces. It's a symbol of goodness and beauty. And I mean, it's a symbol of life. And so we 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 are we're not taught that. 
but we experience it in art. It's celebrated in art. And we're so drawn to the feminine form way more so than the masculine form, the male form. And it's, it's, there's value in that for a woman to own for herself, mm. irregardless if society ever comes around and values, values her. She doesn't need society to value her as a 60-year-old woman who's come home to her sexuality. She gets the juiciness of her own orgasmic bliss. Who cares about patriarchal society at that point? Like, she has the gift already. And then it's more women just saying, like, I'm sorry, but fuck the patriarchy. Fuck the rules. I'm just going to come home to my body and my pleasure. And then it gives other women that permission to do so. And like, I don't even know what might happen to the world, but I can tell you it's going to look like a very different place when women come home to how magnificent their pleasure is, how magnificent their sexuality is. And it's that body-based homecoming around pleasure and goodness and beauty that's like the only way to get there is by first stop, like no more shame. No more shame. Mm. <laughs> no more shame. That's why we began this conversation around like no more shoulds, mm -hmm. no more policing people, because we're really trying to get back to giving women the gift of their own sexuality and what happens in the society when women are trusted with their own sexuality. Mm, that's an interesting that's an interesting thought to think to to sit with when women are trusted with their own sexuality. I think yeah, I think that's interesting when you when you look at the societal shoulds of what a woman should be, then a religious should on what your sexuality or your appearance should be. Do, can you define what you mean when you're using the word sexuality? Life force energy. Like whatever is alive in me is my sexuality in that moment. And so it's connected to my emotion. It's connected to my desire. It's connected to my ability to create so that is everything from my ability to create a human being and to nurture a human being in my womb to my ability to create a certain mood in this moment with you, Conrad. Like I can, a woman's ability or anyone's human's ability to create a certain vibration, a certain like vibe. Like that's like a, we call things vibes because we experience that. Yeah. What happens with different vibes. And so yeah. sexuality is that ability to create it's the courage to be so real with whatever is alive in you that you know anger can become very sexy grief can even become very sexy and you can have these beautiful blissful orgasmic ecstatic experiences with the full range of emotion when you're willing to be so raw and real with yourself but because there's so much policing and so much fear around what other people think of you, there's a lot of unpacking to do so that you can just experience your raw, real self. And that, when a woman can experience that, then a whole world opens up as far as like what she knows of her as her sexuality. That's very different. Or maybe, yeah, it's just not, it doesn't even matter what the patriarchy thinks of sexuality. It's just a small picture of mm. it, right? Like whatever painting we get, you know, whatever vision we have of a woman's sexuality based on a Coors Light ad, like that's nothing compared to a woman's own embodied That's a beer, experience. fellow Australians. Coors Light, just in case yeah, you're like, sorry. what? That's an that's a American beer, yeah. Good old American yeah. beer. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just like, that's why I just laugh at this, I, this concern sometimes around, you know, appearance or am I playing with or am I playing into beauty standards? I'm like, it doesn't even matter. Like I have the thing that I want 
which is my ability to connect to pleasure, my ability to experience sacred moments with people I love, my ability to experience this intimacy with my husband. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, it really, they, it doesn't really matter what patriarchy or people that live under that convention think about me and my sexuality. What matters is is what I'm experiencing. And that's what I want to give to women is to kind of flip convention on its head. And instead of being like, you don't need to fix the patriarchy first before you can come home to yourself. You coming home to yourself will radically shift society. I like you're, ex- you're expanding the use and definition of sexuality. It's been very much, at least in in my conceptions of the word, it's just relegated to sex and intimacy in that realm. But when I hear you use it and you describe it, it becomes this synonymous with enjoying the world, like very physical, tangible experiences that words can't quite describe, like the art would fit into this, poetry would fit into this, um, excitement you get from things that might not even be related to physical sex but you're kind of using the word sexuality to encompass the non-explainable pleasure of human experience what it sounds like yeah i think the universe is very sexy i think the universe is a very sexy place and maybe it's like just the lens on it from the tantric view of things where in the tantric view of view of things like everything's in a state of love making like there are these polarities and the reason we even have a world is because these polarities came together and they're, they're through love making you know whether it's a poetic phrase or not or really what happened it's just the state of Things being polar opposites, tension, dialectic, and interacting, being in a state of lovemaking. like love making, mm-hmm. interacting, giving, receiving, creating yes. something new is the state in which, when you're making music with someone in a band, that would be in this definition love making of going, I'm producing something, mm-hmm. you are producing something. Together, we then create something and we feel the effects of it. That that you can't just describe with scientific language of like well you're just creating sound waves yeah but in the human experience you're creating something bigger a connection a space a a vibe is what you're is what you're talking about when you it it's it is interesting that when when we look at the shoulds there is that level of not trusting the other person to be like well and and it's a it is a when i think about all the ways in which the world says you should be this, you should be that, you should be this, the fixation and fascination of both the secular world and the religious world around sex and sexuality, particularly around women's sex and sexuality, I find it so much more prioritized in both settings. And that that phrase of saying we're not trusted with our sexuality, I, I see that trend only by how much that we are we so often judge people more on anything to do with sex than almost anything else and it's and yeah it's yeah it's given me something to think about what what do you say to the person that would say it sounds like you're just looking at about a pursuit you're just talking about a pursuit of hedonistic pleasure it's just like pleasure above all costs like what would you say to someone that's that might be pulling that from what you're saying yeah i think just the clarification is there's pleasure to escape oh and then there's pleasure to come home okay 
And, and pleasure to escape is a fleeing from the present moment. It's a fleeing from who you are into, um, into an away, into something else. It's a, it's a desire to disconnect from what is. But pleasure to come home is a desire to integrate, to bring into the circle, to be super present, to, to welcome the shadow and the light. And so this is how things heal is by bringing it together, but it's, it's the exact opposite of hedonism. Like it's the exact opposite of uh, this. It's a violent act around pleasure to, to create more division within ourselves when we, we use anything to escape. I mean, drugs, money can be used as an escape, um, entertainment, anything can be used as an escape. And we it's not pleasure though. That's not the erotic. The erotic is saying, I want to participate in the lovemaking of the universe. I see that it's actually safe and I can be a part of this in a way I can be a participant in this way and I'm in. So that is a whole other way of seeing the world mm -hmm. other than uh, sex is dark. Sex mm -hmm. is, is seedy, dangerous, devil, you know, this idea that sexuality in and of itself is going to pull you astray from what is good and beautiful and true in the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you see sexuality as the good, the beautiful and true, not in the way that it's painted in the pornographic, the pornographic and the erotic are very, very different things. The pornographic is violence. Yeah. It's a one particular lens and it's not about, it's not about the, um, the experience of deep presence and embodiment. And so it's this sex is what as I product. say. Yeah, sex is product, and it's to to escape something. There's people that are addicted to porn. Like there's there's healing to when it comes from realizing that there is trauma, that um, they're using just like you know alcohol, drugs would be used to try to fill the void. So there's work to be done for our society to help reconcile the shadow because these things that are good have then been perverted because there is always this like, this energy that can be manipulated and used. Anything that is powerful, sex, God, money, has the potential to be perverted when we are repressing aspects of it or when we decide, you know, come in with some shoulds around it. And this is where it gets really nuanced and complicated because it's not just about a free-for-all. Like our society is not ready for that. Every single person has to do their own shadow work before it's actually safe to have that mm. kind of permissiveness around sex and love. Our society isn't mm. there, but that doesn't mean certain individuals aren't there. Like other people who are doing their work and are doing the, the work of examining and unpacking and asking the questions and going deeper around what is convention or why do we have certain conventions around sexuality? Mm. Why do we have certain conventions around um what we think is safe and moral and what we think is dangerous. And, you know, it's, it's worthwhile to start asking the question. It sounds as if then what people critique about sex and sexuality is this divorce, commodified, isolated, extracted version of sex and sexuality that is detached from sounds like what you're talking about is this connectedness and integration of that is just what is pulled out and commodified is one facet of a more complex human uh, tapestry that 
sex as you're using it and sexuality how you're using it is so integrated to everything else and it sounds like what people might critique maybe even rightly so they critique it rightly but they're critiquing the extracted isolated portion of it the pornographic the commodified the sex as product the sex as identity and 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 your everything i hear you kind of pulling it back to these things can be indicators of something going on deeper inside they can be tools to work on your own self-acceptance or your shame it's like it's more of an extension or expression of the human rather than something separate to us if that kind of is some summary that makes sense we are we are we are created beings we are creating we are part of this process of nature that involves some some expression of sexuality that it's this is so normal sex is so normal mm-hmm. sex is so normal it's not bad it's not dangerous it's just like coming home to our humanity coming home with dignity to our humanity and this is you know the sorry my my phone's dying okay that's... <laughs> this is yeah but it's it's this this it's coming home to the dignity of this experience of being here. Like, what does it mean to be human? I don't know. Like, I don't know. But, but it involves like, sex. There's some, it involves <laughs> sex. It involves sex. I don't know what it means to be human, but I know it involves right. sex. And a lot of other and things. There is a, and a lot of other things. And the thing is, like, sex is such a beautiful uh, field of shadow and light. And so it's so potent for healing. It's so potent for uh, opportunities to awaken hmm. because we do get confronted with the shadow. We, we, and so the thing is like when you give yourself permission to start just allowing your desires and then not as a free for all, like you're going to go hook up with whoever you want, but as like for your own self, you get, you get to experience sexuality with yourself. Like, that's not going to harm somebody. Like, don't turn on any screens. Like, just be with your own body and start exploring. And so when we can start really feeling safe with that energy, because, again, it's about information, right? The energy of our sexuality, the turn on itself, and really starting to understand who we are when we are turned on, when we feel sexually aroused, like, to bring consciousness there. Because most people go unconscious. It's that they're so afraid of their own sexual arousal because it's been so much shame, it's been shamed, that they are not fully present and they don't really know who they are when they're turned on. Mm-hmm. Maybe, and it's almost like that's why there's like the walk of shame the next day for the hookup culture is because it's like people rely on drugs or alcohol to have these sexual experiences because they actually don't know how who they are. And they have these really profound experiences and they don't know how to be present through it. But when we bring our consciousness to our turn on and actually start exploring like, who am I when I'm, sexually aroused who am i in orgasm like that begins to this like all of a sudden like the walls come down and we are in a different world and there is a beautiful experience of it's almost like you're well you are in an altered state of consciousness but similar to mushrooms or something like that where you start to have a you start to see oh the world things aren't the way they seem there's something else going on there's something, there's a bigger story at play. 
And, and that's really a beautiful moment when you realize there's more to this than what you've been told. And you get to start exploring that through your own energy, through your own sexual energy, through your own spiritual energy, through your presence. Sorry, we can go so many different directions with this, Conrad. But Yeah, so if, you, if you're listening and you have any questions, you're like, I'd like to know what she means more about this, that, or the other. I, I'm more than happy to do follow-ups and kind of dig deeper in the areas that maybe people don't understand, maybe people want more clarification uh, with. Uh, and just to just to wrap up for the second time, Morgan, um, like when it sounds like all of this that you're talking about is ultimately like an acceptance of the parts that are often denied of us. We deny ourselves certain parts of ourselves. And when you're talking about being present with your sexuality, it's almost like this when you're, it sounds like you're saying being curious about who you are when you're orgasming, when you have pleasure, when you're doing these things, we maybe because we idolize the intellectual cerebral thinking mind, things like sex are too human, animalistic and uncontrollable and therefore lower on the intellectual totem pole to be like, you're just driven by desire you need to control yourself with your rational mind and do all these things and for someone to accept their sexuality sounds like they almost need to accept the part of their human condition that can't be controlled because we are attracted to the people we're attracted to and and we find pleasurable the things we find pleasurable and we can i suppose deny that and try and control this part of ourselves with a part of our mind that we control everything, but it sounds like you're talking about leaning about and accepting the, the, the parts of ourselves we can't control and we can take joy in it even. Yeah. And it's accepting doesn't mean free for all accepting doesn't mean handing the rein to that part of you to run the show. Accepting just makes room for that part of you to exist and to be, and to be a part of you. Hmm. And so it's, it's a homecoming to your own self and less about uh, what's going to happen next as far as like how you're going to live your life or what this means for your marriage and are you going to be non-monogamous or what happens next. It's more about this homecoming to yourself that's like, what would it be like if I just allowed this part of me room to breathe and I welcomed it in with love and acceptance not, and this is the thing, it's like parenting, a good parent doesn't just give the reins to the kids, like the kids aren't running the household, but there's love and acceptance for where that, what the child needs, where when the child is experiencing life, the emotion. And so that's, I think, you know, there's so much to this conversation and there's a nuance to this and to become really conscious and masterful in your life, it's about learning how to work with these energies in a very conscious way, mm. not as like, you know, in the beginning, you just rely on someone else's rules that they give you. And that's important, maybe as a stage of development, like there's a reason why we ask our, you know, 
14 year old, like if he has a girlfriend, a girl over, we're like, keep your door open. You know, it's just like the way we create certain guardrails. But like when you're an adult, 30, 40 years old, like you don't need the same guardrails anymore. Hmm. And so to learn how to trust yourself, to bring your consciousness, to bring all the tools that you've used to heal the inner trauma, to heal your inner child, and now bring this to your sexuality as well, because it's the consciousness piece. This is the light of, you know, when we talk about uh, awakening or enlightenment, it's we are meant to bring this light to all the places in our life. And it's a, it's a, this is how we become fully online, fully human. Mm-hmm. Fully human isn't just intellect alone. Mm-hmm. Fully human also isn't just reverting back to the primal like urges of an just being totally unconscious and unaware of our actions and the consequences of our actions. To be fully human is to have the intellect, to have the heart-centered, compassionate awareness that our actions do have consequences, and to be very connected to our desires and to not shame our desires, but to somehow be in a show up in the world in a way where all of these ways of knowing are information for us. Hmm. And that allows us to be more present with ourself and more present with another person in a way that's hopefully life-giving. Mm. It is interesting when I, when I hear you talk about, I, I got, the, I got the, the sense that when you're talking about being present, there's this fear that seems to come from a certain way of viewing things. So if you're saying be present with yourself and explore and play with it and all of those things, part of the intellectualized view likes to project the future. And I just noticed that that's, that's a bit where some fear comes from. Cause, and like you really articulated well, it's like no one's saying like it's a free for all and you're losing control to all of these things. But that seems to be a fear that's expressed by the projection of the future. Well, if I do it now in this moment, I'm going to be just, what am I going to be like for the, for the future? But you're kind of saying that space isn't for now. The projecting of the future and your life plans is not for the be present with yourself space you're talking about creating. When we repress something, when we deny it, we give it power. Mm. Jung said this, what we resist persists. And so the more, I mean, this is why there's so, it's like a trope. It's like a, a, it's unfortunately a pattern. Like there's so many evangelical pastors that are, you know, so against gay and homosexual. And then they're found in like this orgy with like meth and like all their gay lovers. Yes. It recently just happened again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's this, yeah. When we're playing with these, these powerful forces, we, We learn how to be with them through love, through acceptance, through not shaming. When we shame and separate and condemn and and repress, we're just feeding it. We're just feeding it. And it's going to erupt in a way that's very harmful for our families, for our society. And it's like, haven't we learned our lesson yet? Like, haven't we learned? And it's like, it's been here. This wisdom has been here all along. What we resist persists. And so any part of us that we're resisting, that's not going to go away. Like the law of thermodynamics, like things do not, the energy cannot be destroyed. We get to learn how to, okay? You know, like this is an energy. It's a certain quality to us. And so we learn either how to shift that energy and how to work with it in a way that is life-giving and nurturing and generative and helpful, or it's going to destroy us. 
like there's a beautiful scripture from the Gnostic Gospels, you know, these scandalous texts that are, <laughs> some don't think not included belong, in the but Bible. I would say there's a lot of wisdom to be found in there. Yeah. About, you know, you got to bring forth what is in you. And if you bring forth what is in you, what is in you will save you. If you don't bring that forth, what is in you will destroy you. So bring, basically do the work of bringing what is in you to light. That will save you. But if you deny it, it will destroy you. So sex is a huge, this is where we see it a lot. Well, we could definitely continue for some time, but if you're listening to this and you have any questions and you're thinking, I need to understand these different aspects more, I'm sure Morgan would be more than happy to spend even more time. She's already been so generous with her time to talk about this stuff. So thank you again for exploring all these things, being honest, answering my my questions and providing definitions to words that I'm unfamiliar with. So thanks so much. Such a great way to spend a Friday night when my husband's camping in the woods with another friend so i'm like what else am i gonna do let's talk about sex all night long thank you so much